Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the newest episode of The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. And if you've been paying attention to the last few episodes, we've been making uh, a lot of statements around regulatory framework as it pertains to pharmacy as well as hazardous products, mainly um, as it pertains to USP Chapter 800. Today, we are gladly joined by an expert in the field um, who's been covering USP 800 and its changes over the course of time. And it is a member of our clinical services team who's been with us since 2014. So we'd like to welcome Mr. Matt Martin to the episode. Welcome, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and Sebastian. Well, I know you're in the um, beauty, beautiful confines in your room in Kentucky, not with us here in Houston. But thanks to technology, we're, we're staring right at you. And for our listeners out there who are not aware, we do have the capability of recording with uh, many guests over an online presence. So thanks, Matt, for joining us. I know we probably have a lot to talk about. Um, for the few, for first few episodes, I, I did talk about the fact that the number one common request um, as an overall topic and as, how it pertains to pharmacy has really been USP 800, specifically in the last year or so. We've put so much attention on this topic specifically, and we've actually created a complete landing page which I've alluded to on prior episodes, and that is essentially a microsite that is found on www.pccarx.com forward slash USP 800. And this is the ultimate resource to learn more about how this pertains to the pharmacy world, um, what pharmacies really need to know before embarking on hazardous compounding. And I, I think we've done an excellent job at putting so much information together. While it does seem quite confusing, um, a common question that someone like Matt gets often is, where do I go? Where do I start? Uh, what do I do next? And how do I get prepared for a December 1st deadline? So. Matt, I know I'm, I'm kind of leading everybody on and that the fact that there is a lot to cover, we're going to do as best as we can in a limited time on the podcast. Um, if I could just ask you off the top of my head, you know, what are some of the bigger questions that you get about USP 800 and what has been some of the major obstacles that, that you've seen specific pharmacies run into when they look at renovations? So I think what some people have gotten the impression is that maybe USP 800 is still going to change or go away. And to this point, there's no indication that there's going to be any further changes to the chapter, uh, no indication that the date that it's going to become official in USP is going to move. That did happen once before, um, but currently it's scheduled to become official in USP uh, December 1st, 2019, uh, and there's, there's no indication that's going to change. So certainly if people uh, are not uh, reading the chapter, preparing for change, talking with contractors, uh, then, then they really have got to step on it. And the first, the first thing they've got to do is really read the chapter. And to keep that thing handy, it's freely available from USP online so they can hop on and get that. Uh, if they, once you've read it, you're going to have to read it again, read it a couple more times, look at some more resources, and be very wary of... Sometimes people hear things from colleagues uh, or friends who tell them uh, the way that this thing is going to be implemented means they have to do this or that or the other thing, and they they call us and they're they're kind of panicked, 
And it turns out that really, if you go back and read 800 and see if it really tells you that you have to do those things, sometimes you'll find out that that people have kind of gotten a bad story or misread or misinterpreted. And so the best thing to do is always to go back to 800 and reread that for yourself and verify that it really says what you think it says. And certainly you have questions. We more than welcome the opportunity uh, to speak with pharmacists and discuss their questions. Uh, But I think a lot of people can solve some of these problems by heading back to the chapter and and looking at how it's specifically written. Uh, And and another note on that uh, is to look at the, the the words should and shall in the chapter. Uh, shall uh, is a requirement of the chapter and should is a recommendation. Okay. So sometimes people may be concerned about a topic like medical surveillance. Uh, medical surveillance is certainly something everyone can consider, um, but that is a should item uh, in the chapter. And so it's not a specific requirement of the chapter. Uh, and then the other thing people want to talk about is whether or not it's going to be enforced in their state. And certainly there are a number of responses from boards of pharmacy uh, across the country uh, to 800 uh, with some states, absolutely. December 1st this year, you have to be compliant. No no questions. Other states have said, well, we're still looking at it. We're going to implement parts of USP 800, or maybe for certain drugs, we're going to do this, or certain classes of drugs. Uh, some states have said, no, you know, we don't think we need to implement USP 800. We have certain hazardous drug regulations on the books. Um, the only thing I would say about all that is we, we don't know what that means for other agencies. Certainly FDA is a part of uh, compounding life and, and part of pharmacies. And FDA has not made a statement specifically on USP 800. Uh, however, I would point out that in their insanitary conditions guidance document, they do talk about the handling of hazardous and highly potent drugs. And we have seen them make some observations in 483s uh, around beta-lactams, uh, around opioids, uh, so and around hormones in a couple of cases. So this is definitely something that's on their radar, but I couldn't tell you how they're going to respond, react, or handle 800 in their inspections, but I think it's something that people should be mindful of. So this, this really opens up a lot of questions, and one of the first ones that I'm, I'm, I want to come back to, and so I just want to keep this in mind, you talked about uh, effectively a health monitoring perspective. We're going to come back to that one, but right away... USP 800. This is this is looming. Um, what are the biggest pitfalls? And, and and like, of course, now that we're over the hurdle, yes, it's happening. Yes, it, this is going to occur. Yes, what you see available is going to be put into effect. Where would you start with this? What, like you said, read the chapter, reread the chapter, make some notes, ask some questions. But what's next? What's the first big thing that you would start looking at if you were in a pharmacy today? and saying, I have to move towards this. I've done my reading. What's my first step? What's my second step? And then continue on. So I think the next thing, when we talk about hazardous drugs, we're talking about drugs on the NIOSH list. And so I think the next step is to get a hold of that NIOSH list and review what drugs that are in your practice that are on the NIOSH list that you need to consider uh, what types of hazardous containment they're going to need. Uh, I would take 
this point to also say that there's a, a key point that I think has been discussed in different ways out there and some of the feedback we've gotten from people at various meetings they've attended that they've come away with an impression that there's a possibility uh, to do a risk assessment for a chemical that is on table two or table three of the NIOSH list. And I think that this is a uh, an interpretation from the frequently asked questions that USP holds uh, on their website regarding USP 800. Uh, and I, I would say that it's not my interpretation that you have that opportunity to do a risk assessment when you are using a drug from table two and three of the NIOSH list, if those are a chemical from table two and three to say the, the powdered ingredient as opposed to a finished dosage form like a manufactured tablet or capsule, that's separate. But box one of USP 800 says that any hazardous drug API has to have all of the containment strategies of USP 800. Okay. And so in looking at what is an API, um, this was described further by uh, a lady named Patricia Keenley. Uh, Ms. Keenley was on the USP 800 committee. Uh, she has a book that was published through ASHP called the Chapter 800 Answer Book, where she talked about this issue of what is an API and talked about it being a powdered chemical ingredient. And so we need to make sure that, that everybody's on the same page uh, and understand that if you're compounding with these, these drugs that are table two and three drugs, which includes things like estradiol or progesterone, that uh, just as for me, a strict reading of USPA 100 does not allow a risk assessment for compounding with those chemicals. Um, so I, 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 I am always a little bit wary of that interpretation that seems to have floated around uh, for some folks. Well, we, we can blame uh, Canada for that the, one. That, that, that's the case in Canada, and that is totally appropriate for Canadian market, but not here in the U.S. My understanding is USP 800 is USP 800, and it applies to the entire NIOSH list. So, yeah, sorry about that. Blame Canada. Yeah. But keep, keep going. Keep going. Well, I think, the, I think the other thing that people have to get started is looking at their facility uh, and seeing whether or not they're going to be able to modify their facility. Uh, some people have found out that maybe they had a landlord uh, that wasn't enamored with uh, all these renovations to their facility, and so they're they're moving their pharmacy. Uh, and then beyond that, trying to find some contractors, and I think that's the other pretty big challenge for a lot of folks, is finding a knowledgeable contractor that has had some experience in the healthcare arena before. I think one of the things people can look for is a contractor that may have worked with some of the hospitals uh, in their area and see if they've had any uh, experience working there. Uh, beyond that, once people have a contractor, uh, Eagle, the folks over at Eagle have hired a couple of engineers uh, who can be very helpful in working with pharmacies or working with their contractors uh, as much or as little. Uh, as my understanding, they do this on an hourly basis. So you can use them as much or as, as little as you see fit for your project. Um, but I, I think a lot of pharmacists uh, would benefit from uh, those engineers who have spent some time and experience uh, over the last couple of years working with folks on these remodels, uh, on making these changes. And then to get, to get this process started, I'd really encourage people, if you're going to do this, like you got you to get going now because the lead time that we're seeing 
to get the various pieces uh, of equipment or the lead time to get with uh, contractors, the lead time to get with consultants is, is growing and growing uh, as we speak. And it, it's going to take some time to get the things you need just because you decide, okay, I need this air handling unit or this blower or whatever you need doesn't mean you can just up and buy it. And so uh, the faster you get started, the faster that you can get these orders in so you can get continue to move in that process. Matt, just out of, your, uh, out of curiosity, based on what you've seen, um, there have been a lot of people that have been tasked with renovations or potentially moving. Have you seen a lot of individuals install a modular setup um, that might be less daunting um, and less of an infrastructure change because we're now talking about building a quote-unquote box uh, within an existing space uh, that might have the ability to handle air in a different way. I, I think it's probably the air handling that ends up being the biggest uh, component, and then that really depends on where they are in a building and uh, if there's other things, other businesses or entities that are above them perhaps in a space and how they're going to be able to run their duct work and separate their air intake from their exhaust so that those things aren't crossing over uh, or where that's going to exhaust to. Uh, and so I think a lot of the focus tends to be on uh, setting up that and also where they're going to be pulling air from and considering the ongoing cost of, of constantly heating and cooling air to put into that space and then turn around and pump it, you know, right back out of the room with all the different air changes that you've got to have. So walk us through, because you're talking about all of these air changes and the air movement and the airflow. Break it down in, in really clear, concise terms, because when people hear about USP 800, they start, they get these big extravagant things in their head. Describe it. Give me, get, walk me through so I can have a mental picture of what we're talking about, because we're... We're getting okay. into some terminology like CSEC and CPEC and air exchanges per hour and uh, Pascals and, you know, there's a lot here. So if you could kind of give us a quick, quick understanding so you can visualize what, what this room would look like. Sure. Let's, let's divide this. Let's talk at first about non-sterile compounding. Yep. Uh, and so when non-sterile compounding, when we talk about the CPEC, the, the CPEC is your powder containment hood, Okay. And you have an option in 800. Your uh, powder containment hood can either be externally vented, so the hood is connected to ventilation that gets pumped out of the building, or you can have uh, a dual HEPA filters or double HEPA filter hood uh, that recirculates air back into the room. Then there's the room itself where the hood is, the lab. And the lab has to be vented to the outside. There, there's no questions about this. So there's a lot of questions. Sometimes people hear different things about this. But the room itself for compounding with hazardous drugs has to be vented out uh, in non-sterile or sterile compounding, no question. The difference being that in, in non-sterile compounding, your CPEC or your powder containment hood can be vented out. It can also be double HEPA filtered and recirculate that air uh, back in the room. And so uh, aside from all the terminology, what it tries to create is a fail-safe system, right? Your, your goal when you're working in that powder containment hood is to keep all the powders in that hood through appropriately staging everything in that you need 
uh, going through the process of compounding and then being able to decontaminate uh, and remove all these substance, leftover substance from anything that's going to come back out of the hood, you know, having your trash in a trash chute on the side of the hood, uh, and then not coming out with any of that powder after you're done. But if you did come out with some powder, then the, the room itself has this negative pressure ventilation to pull that stuff away to try to keep anyone from being exposed to it. So we've got a room, so we've got a, a ventilation containment device in a room, which is then effectively trapping any accidental uh, powder escape. So it's preventing the contamination of the rest of the facility. That's effectively what we're doing because the worker inside the room should be wearing appropriate personal protective equipment or PPE, correct? And they might be having Absolutely. further enhancements of that PPE. It's not just the simple, oh yeah, latex gloves and a disposable gown in this case we're looking at enhanced PPE in that scenario as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. The chapter has specifications on uh, what exactly the gloves uh, have to meet, uh, particular ASTM criteria. Uh, the gown is a solid front that ties in the back to prevent exposure, uh, also to prevent liquids and things that might splash back on you depending on what you're working with. Uh, and so this is going to be a different type of PPE. And this is another great place that people can start now, even if they're getting everything in line with this construction or renovation or move or whatever they've got to do from a facility standpoint, they can be going ahead and thinking through their SOPs and their downing practices and having people get used to that. And we're also talking about double gloving in this scenario under 800. So that may be different if you used to working in a single pair of gloves, but having that uh, that secondary pair on and kind of getting used to working with your hands again in the in a totally different tactile sensation of wearing two pairs of gloves. Um, so th that's a really good place for people to get started with their PPE now and kind of get comfortable and used to it as opposed to all this change all at one time. And so now to extend this, you you wanted to start with non-sterile. So what about sterile? Because like that, this sounds like it's just like another added level and a different beast altogether because we're trying to protect the compound as well as the workers. Yeah, absolutely. So many people in sterile compounding may have been uh, doing their work in a, a horizontal laminar flow hood, which blows air at you. And now in the case of these hazardous drugs, this is going to be a hood that is vented to the outside. And this changes the way that you move your hands in that space. Um, because of the airflow in that hood, so that you're not blocking first air. Uh, so this is certainly something to get used to if you are getting into the world of hazardous drugs on the sterile side. Uh, if you are used to working in a horizontal laminar airflow hood, uh, then you've got to get used to a whole new way of the way that you move your hands along with the gowning. Uh, the difference on the sterile side is there is no option to uh, have this double HEPA-filtered hood that recirculates air back into the room, and that makes sense, right, because then you would have all this air turbulence that could occur that might make you um, more possible to contaminate that sterile preparation. Um, so all this stuff is vented out, both the room and the hood, on the sterile side uh, versus the non-sterile where you have the option to have the double HEPA-filtered hood. So now we have an idea of what the rooms are looking like. What about the equipment? Can we bring the equipment back and forth? Can we, like, these are some of the questions that we're getting. Like, d does this mean we need new labware? Are we going to be sequestering out equipment? 
Yeah, so it talks about having dedicated equipment. So, yeah, this, you are looking at having a separate set of equipment for your hazardous lab that's separate and distinct to the hazardous lab versus the equipment that you use in what will now be your non-hazardous lab as opposed to just your, your compounding lab under 800. So you are looking at a separate set of equipment. So it's definitely valuable to consider the specific types of preparations and think about what you really need for those to, to get that lined out. So now that we're getting, like, we've got an idea, we've got a, we've got a room inside of the building that's going to have specialized ventilation. We've got specialized equipment within. Even the PPE is going to be different. Anything else that you can think of that people should be starting to be made aware of? Because I'm thinking that even the staff are going to have to have specialized training because it's, it's a, like you said, the different, the different tactile sensations, but realistically, even the process is going to be completely different. I know in sterile, we stage products in so that we prevent contamination of the space. But in this case, we're going to be staging chemicals out, making sure that no powder escapes the dust containment hood, um, those sort of pieces. It looks like we're going to have to undertake some training as well. Yeah, so all of, this, all of these things, all these practices in 800 come with standard operating procedures that need to be written to address every part of the process. Uh, so that is another thing that people can be doing now is working on their SOPs specific to their facility and then how they're going to do it uh, and then start walking through that process on the training and then making sure that the training is well documented as well, right? Because any inspector from anywhere that comes in is going to want to see that documentation. Always go back to that phrase, if you didn't document it, you didn't do it. Uh, and so this is critical in hazardous drug compounding, just as it is in all compounding, to be creating those records now and, and getting those things filed away for each person that's going to work in this hazardous drug space. So Little Bird told me you've been working on some SOPs. That might be, might be true to that rumor. And so you're looking at making sure that our SOP manual is going to be in line with everything that's going to be published. And I know that we're, we're looking at 795, 797, USP 800, overlaying that entire piece. So we have that new manual, and you've already been working on that for like the last, what, almost two years, I think? Uh, we've, we've had a group that's been working on it for several months now, uh, and, and we hope to, to debut that in the future. Um, but yes, I mean, certainly there is a lot of change uh, from the USP side. As you noted, we've got a new 795, a new 797, and 800 and all that's becoming official at the same time on December 1st. So people are going to have a number of things to be looking at, whether it's beyond use dates or water activities or their environmental monitoring on the sterile side and uh, choosing a lot of, of potential change in their practice. And so uh, we are reviewing the PCA SOP manual and, and look forward to uh, talking more about that once we get it squared away. You know, man, I'm going to come back to something because you covered so much information and, and obviously in a very condensed amount of time. Um, I started off the podcast by talking about our landing page and the website uh, that was created specifically to help educate any, anybody, quite frankly, because it is on our public domain, um, so that they can learn a lot more about the chapter and about everything else. Uh, we touched on equipment. We touched on PPE. We touched on SOPs um, and obviously potentially the construction of a modular clean room and the equipment required for this designated space. Um, what are some common questions that you get? Because I know we do have a frequently asked questions section to the website. 
some more, uh, I, I guess you could say other questions that we get that are quite tough that you still feel that are a pretty big challenge out there. And how would you like our audience to hopefully learn from all that? I think the other consideration people have is whether or not other things, other, other drugs are that are not specifically on the NIOSH list and whether or not they are considered hazardous drugs or maybe the chemical has some potential to cause skin irritation or some other problem, right? So they go like, well, you know, do I call, call this a hazardous drug or not? And so what I would tell people to do is refer back to the criteria uh, in the NIOSH list that they use to evaluate drugs uh, and use that against the chemical or drug that you're talking about and see if it meets those criteria or see also if there is a similar chemical or drug uh, on the list and then make that determination uh, for your practice. Uh, certainly, if you want to put something on your hazardous drug list, um, that, that is certainly something that you can do. But um, And then always check the list, too. The, the other thing that happens, you know, much we were talking about the need to go back and read specifically in 800 to see what it says when people tell us things is people will call sometimes and say, oh, you know, I was told that this drug or that drug is on the NIOSH list, and it's just not there. Uh, so uh, always just going back and checking these things um, can be really very beneficial, and I think avoid a lot of heartburn for folks that, uh, you know, have gotten really concerned about some of these topics. As it pertains to the most common uh, dosage forms and the most um – I guess you can say most dose chemicals and products um, for those that have even taken a glance at the NIOS list. And I'm guessing at this point they already have. Uh, what are some of the most common molecules that, that really we know from a compounding point of view represent a pretty big chunk um, of that NIOS list? Yes, yeah, so I think hormone replacement is certainly a big topic. You know, many people uh, work to serve patients that have hormone replacement therapy needs. And estradiol and progesterone are certainly on the list. Uh, I would note that the, this is in the NIOSH list. You can find this notation. But the NIOSH list is specifically made uh, from commercially available products. Okay, So compounding chemicals have not been considered in creating the NIOSH list. So you won't find specifically estriol on the NIOSH list, right, because there's not a, a commercially available uh, estriol product. Uh, so that would be another one you, you could refer back to the list and look at estradiol and make that determination that you may very well be putting that on your hazardous drug list. So, Matt, I know that there we're moving through this pretty quickly. Um, one of the questions that we hear often is there's a hazard communication requirement of the USP 800. Um, where, what is this? Like, this is, this is a tough one for a lot of people. They don't understand. Do we have any resources? Do we have any communication pieces that we can assist with? How would you handle that one? Yeah, so the, the hazard communication in general is a document that talks about the fact that you have hazardous drugs uh, in your facility. Uh, it's something that communicates to the people that work there that these uh, hazardous drugs exist in the facility and they're being, being used uh, and it's also something that would be shared with other people that would come in to do any type of work uh, in your hazardous drug lab. Uh, and OSHA uh, has a small entity compliance guide uh, online about how to write 
a hazard communication uh, program, uh, which also involves some training on it, uh, which again, you'll need to document that training, uh, gets into educating people about the SDS sheets, right? The safety data sheets and so that people are aware of how to access those, uh, what to do in the cases of emergency or something goes haywire and there's an exposure, you know, how do you help the person that's been exposed to that particular chemical, depending on how they've been exposed to it. Uh, and so uh, that, that OSHA document that's out there, I think, can be a useful, uh, useful accessory for folks on trying to walk through that process. So Matt, do you know the name of that document for our listeners? And I know that we'll add it to our site, so it'll be easily accessible. But for someone who's searching for it right now, what is the name of that document and where can they find it? Yeah, this is the OSHA Hazard Communication Small Entity Compliance Guide for Employers that Use Hazardous Chemicals. Uh, and so you can, you can Google that thing and, and certainly find a link to the PDF version of the document and then read through on, on how to set up that hazard communication. So Matt, you, you are available through our uh, consulting site and you're probably taking a lot of these questions. I know that you're going to be getting more of these questions. Um, obviously all of our listeners should first place they should go is the USP 800 landing page, read through it, read the documents. Um, is there anything else that you would add before we let you go? Cause I know you're really busy, um, that, that you would say is a must do in the next 30 days. I think people have to read the chapter if they've read it and they've read it several times and they're familiar with it, but they haven't taken steps to look at the design of their facility and, uh, tried to start that process with some contractors. Uh, they've got to get that going. I think they've got to decide who they're going to have help them with the contractors. Uh, like I said, I would suggest the, the two engineers over at Eagle, but they're likely going to need somebody to work with those uh, folks that are making those modifications to their facility to make sure that they do it right the first time. Uh, there's plenty of, of costs associated with making these changes, and you only want to have to do this one time. Certainly don't want to be doing it two or three uh, because something doesn't get squared away right the first time. Uh, and then get that plan in place so that you can start moving forward uh, with this if you're, if you're looking to get ready for December because of the lead time that we're seeing uh, kind of pile up on getting a hold of some of these resources. So it's, it's kind of it's go time uh, for sure. Yeah, go time is probably the best way to say it. Um, it December 1st will obviously approach really quickly. Uh, hence the need of our microsite, which really contains all the information. And I know that you covered a majority of it, Matt. Thank you so much. Uh, I know that you're definitely a busy man and you're hardly sought after when it comes to the regulatory environment and as it pertains to the USB chapter. So thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you've definitely been an awesome resource for people that have not seen you live. Uh, this obviously gives them a really good chance to, to hear what you have to say and also demonstrate your knowledge on this subject. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. And uh, if anyone has more questions, we certainly welcome that in our clinical services department. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. And um, just as a side note as well, for members of PCCA and as well, if you're not a member of PCCA, if you do have additional questions for either equipment needs, uh, 
the potential construction of a modular cleanroom or more information on our microsite, please reach out to your local sales rep. They're definitely going to be one of the, the side experts um, in this field. I wouldn't say they're at, at the level of Matt, but they're definitely here to assist you uh, and to give you more information for any of the needs that you have and potential renovations before December 1st. Um, on that note, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners to continue to follow us on this podcast and to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. Uh, please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio, and we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.